Welcome to Podcast is Code, a show about the operation side of the software development lifecycle. I'm Mitchell Scott. And I'm Gabe Cook. Today, we're going to talk about GitOps, but first, we're going to tell you a little bit about ourselves. I graduated with a bachelor's in science and computer science, which I have um, not really ever used in industry. Right out of college, I went into, I, I worked at a network operations center for a tier one ISP uh, doing IP and Ethernet, you know, circuit monitoring and, and configuration stuff in a in the in the NOC. Um, I did that for about a year and a half, and then I kind of pivoted into doing uh, IT work for a, like an IT consultancy company, um, and kind of worked my way up from sysadmin to system engineer to like a solutions architect, and then I worked for in the same in the same company I ran a managed service practice for uh for Tableau server and that's kind of the first time I started getting involved in in managing infrastructure in public clouds um so we did a lot of work in AWS um and then my background from from before that cloudwise was kind of VMware and on-prem servers and stuff like that um so I was with that company about 6 years and then I started playing more with Docker and Kubernetes and wanted to transition into more of a DevOps role. And so I moved to my current job about two years ago, um, where I've been doing DevOps stuff. How about you, Gabe? I actually started out um, not necess- not not really related to DevOps at all, but started like repairing computers um, at a large unnamed computer repair retailer. Uh, I was there for uh, like five years while I, you know, went through college and stuff. Shortly afterwards, um, started working on some of the, uh, uh, like some government type websites pretty quickly got into DevOps. Although there was a, there was a little transition period where I, you know, did like back in dev and then kind of UX stuff too. Uh, but I pretty quickly realized that the hosting side of things and, the infrastructure was the most interesting to me. So I was there for a couple years. Um, and then I, you know, went to, uh, my most recent company where I, you know, work kind of had to change the whole stack to, uh, get us into Kubernetes and a lot of, you know, more cloud native hosted solutions. Been doing DevOps now for, uh, I don't know, like five years, I think five years, six years, five years. So yeah, it's fun. It's my favorite, my favorite part of the whole tech stack, definitely. Yeah, I, I love the operations side. Um, mm-hmm. Let's let's do our list of questions. You want, you want me to start yes. asking you? Uh, yeah, go for it. All I'll right, do the first one. Um, what's the worst <laughs> thing you've ever done to a production environment? I don't want to do the first one. Okay, um, it's fine. It's not even that bad. I'm very meticulous so i don't feel like i've ever done anything ridiculously bad um knock on wood but when i first was uh learning like cloud environments when i first you know got that devops job was first dealing with aws i didn't realize how their load balancers worked and so i was setting up a new service and i put a load balancer uh to terminate like on the user side and just grabbed the dns records and threw them in dns and apparently AWS rotates those IP addresses occasionally. Just, just so a little bit, like yeah. a week. Li- yeah, pretty commonly. So like a week later, it was just some random site 
nothing horribly bad, but it was not great. Luckily, this was, you know, a new deployment. It wasn't just like the homepage of some site. Nice. My, um, mine's worse. Um, <laughs> what did you do? Okay, so we had a we had a client that it's for the running Tableau server for the managed service. And we had to like RDP through dev to get to prod like to their prod server. So, so I think it was, it was either prod to dev or dev. I can't remember, but we had to RDP through one environment to get to the other one. We didn't have access directly to the one. Um, so I thought I was in dev and I just made some configuration changes through some other system. Like, but I was in the server to reboot it. I had to like actually reboot the windows box, right? Click reboot. And is it a reboot or is it restarting Tableau server? Um, I think it was a reboot and it went to like all the apps closed because Windows Server has a GUI. Stupid. Um, all the apps closed and the background, like the desktop wallpaper was red, you know, with like production across the top because we had different wallpapers on production and non-prod. So I was like, oh, well, this is bad. Um, especially because Tableau Server takes like 15 minutes to start or did at the time. Anyway, it took like 15 minutes to start. And this client was like, you know, they had have a minute or two outage and like, we'd be getting phone calls like, Hey, server's down. What's up? So, um, yeah, I definitely restarted the prod environment, not during like a outage window or anything. So I think that's, I think that's the worst. It was down for like, it, it was down for like 15 minutes and they actually did not notice, which is oh, fantastic. Nice. That could have been worse. Yeah. The, there, it's pretty important to split out those environments so things like yeah, that don't happen. Not ideal. And it sounds like you guys tried really hard with that wallpaper, but <laughs> you didn't see that when you were pressing the reboot button. No, no, there's too much other stuff up there. Um, yeah. All right, what's what's your favorite public cloud and why? Uh, my favorite is, so we've kind of, Mitchell and I together, honestly, have worked a lot in GCP in recent years, but... My favorite still AWS. I don't even know if I have any solid reasons. Maybe it's just I'm more familiar with it. I I do like GCP's cleaner UI. I think it's a little more consistent, but AWS has been kind of upping their game with UI stuff recently. Um, it's still the one that uh, like personal projects. I go straight to AWS. Yeah. Uh, what about you? I think I'll say Google Cloud just because their UI is a little slicker really? and I've I've used it more ever like in the current job. Um, there are some really, really nice AWS services like RDS is way better than Google's like cloud SQL. Um, S3 is pretty comparable to like GCP's cloud storage. Except I wish GCP's cloud storage had like an S3 API. So you could use, you know, there, almost every, like every service that is compatible with object storage can use an S3 API, even if it's not S3, like you can use Wasabi or Minio or whatever, but they actually do. Um, we used it for a short time when we first, I didn't think it was, a, it wasn't a hundred percent though. Right. Wasn't there some weird yeah, issues with it? I, I guess I should have researched that ahead of time. Something was missing or like, I should look at it again for sure. But yeah, I, but it's between GCP and AWS. I think GCP just because the better interface, and then AWS is a little more standard. It's easier to find people who will work who have worked in it and to hire for those jobs because I'm like a hiring manager as well as DevOps nerd. Um, haven't played much with Azure. It's been a couple years since I really messed around with Azure, and um, everything seemed really verbose. It seemed like to create a load balancer, I had to create a ton of different objects and like name them all. 
And I wasn't totally sure like why I had to name individual subnets and things. Yeah, Azure, I've never been a huge fan of all the horizontal scrolling, but they've added AKS, you know, at some point in the past few years, and it's not terrible. I I mean, I think AKS is comparable to um, EKS. And that's kind of the thing is I don't do I don't do a lot of cloud native services like I'm not building lambdas or cloud functions or anything. Pretty much everything I'm playing with is as a container. So as long as I can get some form of like managed Kubernetes up and running. It doesn't really matter what the cloud platform is to me. Kind of yeah. Kubernetes is the is my new operating system for everything. Like that's my layer of abstraction. Yeah, sorry, I should have also mentioned I said AKS and EKS. Uh those are Kubernetes uh, yeah. solutions in each of those clouds. E for AKS Amazon and A for Azure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's, man, that is the one thing I don't yeah. like about Amazon is their names for stuff are horrible. <laughs> All over the place. And the UI for CloudWatch is so bad. But yeah, the names are yeah. not, they don't make a lot of sense. Um, what's your favorite language? Oh, I mean, this is more dev related. It's Go. I love Go. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of, I know, I've been working with, you know, computers and tech for a long time. So DevOps is like my main job, but I also like writing code. Um Go, I think, is by far my favorite. But I, I've really liked Python also in the past for, like, you know, scripts that I need to write. Um, or I've contributed to, like, the Home Assistant project a bit, and it was fun to write Python there. Um, nice. Yeah. I think I'll say Python. I don't work – I don't code much, like, actual code. Like, most of my coding is YAML for DevOps, right? Like, it's not real coding. Um, but probably Python – it's mostly like bash and Python. Honestly, I haven't compiled, I haven't compiled code in a long time, like code that I've written probably since college. Bash scripts are up there for me too. I, I, I enjoy writing pretty ridiculous and, but also powerful bash scripts. Yeah. But I don't know. Bash gets so ugly. (laughs) Yeah. I end up hitting a point where it's like, what have I done? I can't even read this thing I wrote. And also the whole idea of everything's a string is cool, but there are times where it becomes a little annoying. Yeah. So usually I try to like grab Python or go before I go straight to bash, but there are times where it has use. I will say it's a scripting language and this is, you know, we don't talk about it, but like PowerShell is pretty good as a scripting language. It's a, it's a completely <laughs> horrible shell, but like as a scripting language, it is all like natively object oriented. And if you have to do a bunch of stuff in windows land, it's, it can make it nicer. <laughs> you, yeah. You always say that I have no input. I've never really used PowerShell much, except when I accidentally open it instead of a command prompt. Like, why in is windows, this blue? And I'm like, Oh, what am I doing? It's blue, which I like, but otherwise I'm lost. Um, but yeah, uh, so how long have you been using Linux? I've been playing with Linux since 2005. Um, I started with a Red Hat version, or I guess it was Fedora probably. It was a CD, and so I did an internship at a bank, and um, this this IT guy had this like Linux Bible on his bookshelf, and it had a, a, an actual physical CD with... Uh, probably fedora on it i think it's like nice i don't even know what version um and then shortly after that i played with a lot of different os's trying to get windows off my laptop and this was back in the days when like you did mess around with like ndis wrapper for wi-fi and also for sound which was horrible on laptops and the touchpads hardly ever worked um so i ended up 
in I think it was it would have been 2006. I got a Ubuntu had where you could put in your address and they'd mail you like 10 CDs for free. And I had really horrible internet at the time. So pretty much I was limited to what I could get from friends or like Ubuntu mailed me a CD. So I installed the original LTS of Ubuntu uh, 6.06 because it's a weird June release. They were late by two months. And I think it was Dapper <laughs> Drake maybe was 6.06. Um, so that's my first that's version it. of Ubuntu. And I've, I've used Ubuntu pretty much since then especially for servers um what about you um i'm pretty similar actually i don't have an exact year uh i started off kind of uh because of my dad um you know when i was pretty young he i think we had a computer die and he built a new one and he was like why should i pay from have to pay for my os so instead of installing windows we started playing with linux um although we maybe started a little earlier than that. We had a, there was this awesome project, which I think I've seen their website recently. It's still out there called myth TV. It's like an early version of, yeah, like Plex basically, but it's like for live TV specifically. Uh, So we ran that. We started with Fedora and myth TV. And then we found uh, there was an OS called myth Dora, probably around the same time, like 2004. Uh, So it was cool that like back then before, you know, DVRs like recording TV and, skipping ads was very common. Like we had all of that. Yeah. That's cool. Um, eventually we moved to myth And I think that's when the whole, why should I have to rebuy windows? I'm just going to install Ubuntu on our personal computer happened. And so I, I pretty much grew up using it. I I'm kind of more familiar with Linux than windows. I went through small phases here and there, like uh, around probably 2016, I used arch for a few years and eventually I was like, oh, I'll just swap back to Ubuntu. Um, it wasn't bad. I enjoyed it a lot, but I think it was, I was using a fork, which got like Antergos, which stopped being maintained at some point. So I just swapped back to Ubuntu, but yeah, it's been quite a long time. Um, I liked it a lot. What's your like daily driver OS these days, man. It depends on what we're talking about. I didn't really grow up with any Apple products. So, I mean, like I said, I kind of grew up solidly on Linux, but <sighs> recent years, the, like M1 and M2 Macs are just so solid. I I've been using a MacBook for a while now and super happy with it. I mean, having Unix instead of Linux causes some interesting yeah. issues. Like, you know, Docker doesn't work perfectly. And like personally, I'm a huge fan of containers. So that has been a little interesting to have to work around. But like overall, the you know, terminal is basically what I know. So I, I love my Mac. Now, I do also have a bunch of servers at home, and those are Ubuntu server. So definitely, I like Ubuntu security updates and stuff like that. What about you? I, I like you're in a similar boat. Yeah, I'm using, I think every PC in my house, every like computer computer is is a Mac at this point. Yeah. Um, Man, I don't know the last time I actually bought a Windows, like owned a personal Windows machine. Um. <laughs> I've had work Windows machines over the years, like that, like work issued laptops and stuff that were Windows. Yeah, I went through a time. So until relatively recently, I didn't have like a personal like laptop. I just used work issued stuff, and then I had like servers or desktops, mostly servers. Actually, I haven't had a real desktop in a while either. I had a Mac Pro that I turned into a server, but yeah, no, all my all my personal like computing devices are our macbooks similarly um 
I like that it's kind of Nick's under the hood. Yeah. Um, and it, it is a little different. It is also, it's really nice. You can run commercial software, like big fan of affinity. Um, if I had yeah, to run like Photoshop definitely. or something, I could. So that's kind of nice. Whereas sometimes getting that stuff to work on Linux is a huge pain. Um, but similar to you, all my, all my servers are, are Ubuntu. So yeah, mm-hmm. Apple on the desktop, Ubuntu on the servers. I, I would be curious. So I forgot to mention, I have a gaming desktop over here that I don't use too much lately. Cause I got a steam deck. Uh, but this thing has windows, but I can dual boot to Linux and on both this and my steam deck, I have, you know, all of valves, um, like basically new kind of tooling on the, on top of wine. So you can like play windows games on Linux. The steam deck runs pretty well, right. Or an arch derivative. Yeah. They just are like, let's ship a product with arch is great. That's awesome. Um, Actually, I actually do have a a pine book pro laptop that runs Manjaro on it. So it's arch ish. Nice. And it, yeah, it also has adjacent. Kubernetes on it, so <laughs> it's fine. Yes. Bring um, it back to DevOps. Yeah, you wanna you wanna talk about what gear you run at home? Oh shoot. Yeah, I, I talked about my servers a little. I gave a little sneak peek. Um yeah, so I have honestly like not any fancy server hardware. I, I you know follow like some DevOps, like the subreddit and some other communities online, and I keep seeing people post their fancy server racks, but I just have some old desktops, <laughs> honestly, uh, like slim line desktops, and I, I have Kubernetes clusters on them, or just one Kubernetes cluster between all these nodes. I've recently been swapping them out, buying like the tiny PCs, um, you know, like those uh, Lenovo tiny PC, and I have an HP, and it's been really fun to swap to smaller form factor, just they have a cuteness factor that I love. Plus, they're a little bit newer tech, but um, yeah, that's that's most of it on the hardware side. Then software is just all Kubernetes magic. What do you yeah. What do you have? So I've got two Dell R six tens, like single single rack unit servers. Um, they're, I think they're over ten years old now. I think they're from like twenty eleven or something. Um, so. And I got I got those for free when I was doing a data center upgrade as as part of my um, when I was doing IT work. Um, the customer I replaced we replaced these machines with like a bunch of newer servers, and the guy was like, "Oh, you go throw these away." And I said, "Like, can I have them?" He's like, "Yeah, just <laughs> give me the hard drives, and you can have the servers. No big deal." So uh, they've each got tw- uh, they've got two. Each server has two six core Xeon processors in it. Each server has a ninety six gigabytes of memory. So total, I've got 24 <laughs> cores, 24 physical cores and 192 gigs of Ram. Um, they're kind of expensive to run. I think my power bill for those guys is like 30 <laughs> or 40 bucks a month. So I'm actually similar to what you've been doing. I'm looking at down kind of downsizing into those small, like Lenovo little mini PCs. And then I'll shut the, shut the big servers off unless I really need a lot of compute to run VMs or something. And, I used to use a lot more resources, but I've moved from VMs to containers and I use a ton less like system resources. So those servers are only running at like 20 or 30% um, of, of memory and a lot less CPU. So 
you know, I don't need I don't need 200 watts a piece for those guys. And then I also have a couple Synology NASs for storage and stuff. Um, and then I've got some Juniper oh, yeah. Juniper too. networking gear that I bought when I was working at the ISP because most of our stuff was Juniper. It's also really really old. Um, all my stuff is pretty old at this point. I guess my NASs are kind of. I mean, the newest one's six years old, I think, or seven years old. So it's all it's all getting a little old, but. <laughs> That stuff's expensive. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's what I love about, I guess in your case, it's not Linux all the way down, but Linux is so light compared to, yeah. like, if you take an old Windows computer, which is, you know, laggy and not working well, and you throw Linux on there, you'd probably be surprised as to, like, how yeah. well it works. Well, and, like, my servers don't even have hard drives in them. I'm booting VMware off a USB stick in each of them, so, like, they don't even have oh. hard disks. But yeah, and so VMware, it's kind of it's kernels Linuxy. I don't exactly know what ESXi is. It's it, but it's 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 some flavor of Unix or Linux. So yeah, everything runs just fine. It's just now it's at the point that I'm paying a lot for power, and they're yeah, they can get kind of loud. Sure. Um, what nice. IDE are you using these days? <laughs> so I'm actually like in the process of trying to change IDEs. Um. I guess we, maybe we should define what an IDE is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, what's it actually stand for? Uh, <laughs> I don't, it's it, something integrated development environment, I think. Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. integrated development environment. It's a uh, like a text editor, basically, but it's like strongly meant for editing code. It has, you know, completing things that look like, you know, if you start trying to you know, log output, it, it probably knows how to write a log and it's like, oh yeah, here's how you do that. So lots of autocomplete, lots of, you know, tabs and stuff. It's a lot more advanced than notepad. So I've been yeah. using kind of the IntelliJ suite of editors for a long time and I, I really love them. I still like them a lot. I've been trying out recently VS Code, you know, because there's a lot of hype for VS Code online. I tried it probably is Intel- is IntelliJ years ago. Jetbrains? Uh-huh. Yeah. JetBrains, okay. Yeah. Yeah. JetBrains is the company and IntelliJ is kind of the product. And then they have all these different editors like, you know, PyCharm and PHP Storm and GoLand, which are all just kind of these pre-configured are, and versions. That whole like ecosystem's paid, right? Like you buy licenses for mm-hmm. those? Yeah. Yeah. I think it starts at like oh, their price. Their price went up a little bit recently. Uh, it's a few hundred dollars a year if you want all the full suite. Oh, a subscription, Adobe style. Yeah, it's recurring. So <laughs> that's why I've been trying to see if VS Code can fit in my workflow yeah. instead. Like, you know, if I get all the features that I use and it's free, then that's awesome. But I do kind of have a soft spot for IntelliJ. So we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nice. What What have you been using? Oh, I've been using VS Code for a few years. Um, I pretty much went from, so like all throughout school, like in my like college, like my CS program, I didn't use a single editor. I used Vim for everything. Like I never learned how to use an IDE. It was like use Vim and then in a different like terminal tab, compile like Java or whatever. Um, so that's how I learned. I and then Vim. I kind of did that for a while until I got out of doing like writing any code or even like infrastructure as code stuff until I got back into also I started with like PowerShell stuff at the other company when I was writing backup scripts and maintenance Mm -hmm. scripts for Tableau server. It was 
I started needing something that was more than like a text, a text editor. So like notepad plus plus for a little while and then quickly moved to VS code. I actually tried Adam for a brief time, which was, um, that, that cheeky little editor also an electron, um, that, that GitHub was writing before they got eaten by Microsoft and, you know, yeah. Microsoft is the maker of VS code. Adam was really, yeah, I, I mean, maybe VS Code existed at the time, but I kind of feel like it Adam did. came out before VS Code. I used it back when it first. They definitely coexisted for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Because I, I yeah. was looking at I Sublime for the Mac, I mean, but we ran yeah. Windows also, and I don't remember Sublime even had a Windows version. Um, But I wanted something that was a little more open and cross-platform, so I looked at Adam because I wasn't sure about like a Microsoft product. And then... I just started using VS code to try it and it was, it was really, really nice. And I feel like they, they did electron a little better than Adam. Like VS code has always kind of felt native. It doesn't feel like an electron app, which is crazy. I don't know what Microsoft's doing behind the scenes there, but it, it runs really smooth. (laughs) Magic. No, it's definitely, I think the most solid electron app I've ever seen. Cause you know, for, people not familiar with electron that's javascript it's not anything yeah, it's, native it's chrome to your machine yeah it's basically a chrome instance running it's an JavaScript, outdated probably security is. vulnerable version of chrome in each of your applications <laughs> hopefully not but it's i mean it's blazing fast it's yeah pretty impressive all right i think that's all um, the questions we have you know let's move over to like talk about some current events did you see you saw the whole rel debacle right Red Hat Linux source code yeah. changing. Um, so my history is more, you know, with Ubuntu and things, although I've used CentOS a bit, uh, but I, I don't know as much about kind of rel licensing and stuff. Yeah, um, I could give a little history because we, yeah. it was one of the supported platforms we ran Tableau on. So I knew a little bit about it because clients would say like, oh, I, I don't want to use Ubuntu. I want to use Red Hat or CentOS or whatever. So mm-hmm. CentOS, CentOS. I've heard it both ways. I don't know the correct pronunciation. Uh, <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> let us know in the comments. Um. So uh, I think it's been a couple. It's been a couple years ago. Maybe maybe three years ago. I don't know the. I don't remember the timeline. Um. So for a long time, Rel like Red Hat shipped CentOS, which was pretty much it was binary compatible with Red Hat. You basically had free Red Hat that was not supported by, by the company Red Hat. Um. And so a lot of people would use that because they would have systems they paid Red Hat licensing for and they'd have systems they didn't care about as much, like dev stuff. And so they'd run CentOS on that. And then like three years ago, Red Red Hat, the company, they came out and they they said like, hey, CentOS is going to become the upstream of Red Hat Enterprise Linux of RHEL. Oh, so it's like a bleeding edge version. Yeah, so CentOS became right? a little more bleeding edge. It's no longer like, one-to-one compatible with Red Hat necessarily because it may be on an on a newer code base. Mm. Not that, you know, a fine business decision, I suppose. Um, but some people didn't like that. So a couple of projects spun up immediately after Rocky Linux, and I think Alma was the other one. And they are basically building one-to-one binary compatible distros with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, if you want to do that. So on... June 22nd, Red Hat changed how they, how you can access their source code. I believe previously, and I'm not an expert with Red Hat. Uh, like you said, we don't really use Red Hat. 
my understanding is Red Hat changed so that for uh, instead of anybody being able to get Red Hat source code, only subscribers, like paying customers, can get it. And it appears that that is totally fine, like per the GPL. Like as long as you provide code to your customers, that satisfies your GPL requirements. Like you don't have to provide your source code to everyone. Um, that does pose a problem for like the Rocky Linux people and the Alma people who are still trying to build distros based on those packages that they now no longer have access to as non-paying. Mm. Like they're, they're not rel customers. They're not Red Hat Enterprise Linux customers. Um, the interesting thing I read. So on everyone was kind of waiting for like Rocky Linux's in particular, their response. And they posted it on June 29th. So like about a little less than a week later or right at a week later. Um, and that was kind of interesting. I don't really want to get into the whole licensing. Like, is it is the licensing yeah. cool thing or not? <laughs> like, that's not my area. One thing I did notice. It's always a gray area. Yeah. Anyway. One thing One thing I did notice in their blog post, though, is they mentioned using CI, so continuous integration, um, to kind of get around some of these requirements. I'm going to read a little bit from their blog, um, and we'll link their blog post in the show notes. Um, so they said another method that we will leverage is pay per use public cloud instances. With this, anyone can spin up rel images in the cloud and thus obtain the source code for all packages and errata. This is the easiest for us to scale uh, as we can do all of this through CI pipelines, spinning up cloud images to obtain the sources via DNF and post to our Git repos automatically. And I thought that was a super interesting use of like, because you can do the same thing with. I mean, it's a little different because it's not Linux. You can do the same thing with Windows. Like, you can go ask Amazon for a Windows box, and they'll you'll just pay more per hour to cover the licensing cost. I guess you can do the same thing with RHEL, which totally makes sense. But that's kind of a creative way to use, like, DevOps pipelines to pay Red Hat without getting into an agreement directly with them. So I just thought that was super interesting. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. It also, also feels like it's very much a gray area, but... I think that's a really cool like DevOps solution to a yeah. more well, and that you and that they can script the whole thing, right? Like, yeah, that's that just seems really interesting. That was a fascinating way to solve that problem, and a really creative one, which is which is like that's the fun part of DevOps is like all these creative solutions, sometimes janky to like actual problems. <laughs> but it actually, hey, if it works, it actually works. I'd like to keep an eye on there blog and see if you know if they end up doing it that way or yeah and how long like that works for them <laughs> yeah um cool there was also a pretty big gitlab outage like just a couple of days ago yeah so i saw that we don't really use gitlab like the online like the hosted version of gitlab we have a couple of customers yeah. who use self-hosted gitlab instances um but i saw that how how long did it end up being down for um, I, the number on there, it felt like a long time. It was near the end of the day. I remember that they, they posted a whole postmortem here. It looks like it was about four hours, a little under four hours. It's a long time, but it happens sometimes in the DevOps world. Um, it was on f- last Friday, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was on the uh, <laughs> July 7th. Oh man. Yeah, they they were down like half of Friday. Like yeah. bus- like half of business hours, like US business hours Friday. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. GitLab does not subscribe to read only Fridays. 
<laughs> no, I, I GitLab's actually they constantly push to their code base. They've been a pretty big fighter for, you know, heavy testing and heavy CICD reliance. Somewhere in their docs they say they you know, say they push to prod like dozens of times per day. Yeah. Maybe the number Which is more great. than that. Like, I can't remember. I, I, I joke a little bit about like the read only Friday thing, but like <laughs> if you're doing DevOps correctly, like Friday pushes, and especially if you have any kind of testing involved, like that's kind of not a thing. Like like pushing on Fridays is whatever. Yeah. Yeah. If you're able, you know, able to get good test coverage and everything. But in this case, I mean, it shows that not everything is perfect, even with solid tests and yeah. yeah know, did, pretty did they say did they say what went wrong? Process. It looks like they had basically applied some obsolete Terraform plan output, which uh, when the job began, you know, pretty quickly started reverting something. It looks like they caught on to it pretty quickly. Um, but then they had to go figure out what the old Terraform <laughs> changed and then fix it. Yeah, yeah basically what got reverted. Oh, man. Yeah, they say they spent some time trying to fix their Terraform and get a better handle on how a restore would need to work. Um and yeah. then they, you know, they eventually got brought back up, but yeah, we'll put the link to their, they actually, they use their own, like the, the gitlab.com as a repo. They have like an issue template for, for their outages that they update. And I will say, you know, like, you know, companies go down, like, that's just something that happens like inadvertently, oh, yeah. like stuff, stuff's going to break. Um, I will say it, it was refreshing to see them post publicly like they're in progress post-mortem because like they've been filling out this issue like since i saw it uh i think on saturday um so it it looks like a good example of how to do a blameless post-mortem they're going through like here's the timelines here's what happened um that's kind of in contrast to like what aws has been doing lately because and they had an outage <laughs> earlier in june of us east one of course because you know of course it was, but Always. I couldn't find, I couldn't find, I looked a little bit. I couldn't find any write up of like what went wrong for them that day. Um, so it is nice to see a company yeah. who's like, Hey, yeah, we were down. Here's what happened. Here's how we, how we fixed it. And I'm a big proponent of doing blameless postmortems, you know, for, for almost any instance. Mm -hmm. GitLab's been especially transparent, I think, with, you know, what causes outages. They had this big database issue where they actually lost a lot of their production database, uh, maybe last year, or the year before. And the uh, the postmortem for it was very detailed. Um, we, we can provide a link to that, too. But like I came out of that not being nervous for their you know service uptime, but the complete opposite, like wow, they were confident enough to say, oh yeah, we deleted some of our prod data. Here's how we fixed it. Yeah. And I, no, I like that because it, it's, it's yeah. the same thing you see with security incidents. Like every, you know, at some point every company is going to have some sort of security issue and it's not really, you know, the measure of a company isn't like who has the problems. It's how they respond to them. And it's similar for outages too. Cause like if you're, yeah. if gitlab.com being up is critical for your operations, like, like GitHub is for us. Like if GitHub was down for four hours, a lot of our company can't be productive. So, you know, if we had used GitLab instead, like that's a, that's a big problem. That's a big hit to confidence in your vendor. Um, I didn't look offhand. I don't know if GitLab provides SLAs, like service level agreements for uptime. Um, if they do, I bet those are blown for a little while. 
Yeah, I think they do for their higher like paid yeah. tiers, but and and to be clear, this that. impacted everyone. Yeah. Like it it was all GitLab services, even the website completely down for like 4 hours. It's a big deal. Um I think And yeah, you mentioned it being in contrast to some other vendors. I was going to say that AWS outage, we were actually kind of planning to talk on that. I remember AWS had a big outage, you know, a few years ago, and there was some really interesting postmortems afterwards. But I, I went out to look for that one too, and the last one I saw was you know, like December 2021. Yeah, that's disappointing. And I know they've had some outages since then. Again, that's not you know no knock on the service, but it's frustrating to me. Another good vendor with outages has always been Cloudflare. Theirs aren't as real time, but I'm always blown away by the detail they provide after some sort of outage yep so i mean i will say like if you know we use github some people probably use gitlab other people use self-hosted stuff so unfortunately if you're you know if your version of gitlab goes down for four hours that may be on you to fix not on the, (laughs) the the vendor right um i guess it's just one of those kind of risk assessments you have to do of like if the company provides you SLAs, if it's like three nines, 99.9% uptime, you have to be okay with the maximum downtime you could get in a period. And if you're not, you need to architect around that with like we mirror some of our critical repositories elsewhere, because, you know, if something happens, that code is like our, that's the business, right? So, you know, four hours, we could probably tolerate not being able to run CICD for four hours. Um, Four days? Absolutely not. That's unacceptable. And if we didn't have, if we didn't have a way to revert, like to switch off of that to something, to another platform, then like that's a big, big problem. Of course, like we have, we have to trust a little bit in our, in our agreements, like GitHub for us, I think is three nines of availability. So like if they're down for four hours, like our company is getting reimbursed for that. Uh, but again, like, you know, what you pay for GitHub or GitLab or whatever, you may get reimbursed for like what you pay monthly. That may not cover your actual cost of downtime. So that's another thing uh, kind of on the business side of of the operations side of this stuff is what you get reimbursed for. It, it may be a fraction of like your, you know, downtime for your customers that you may have to pay their agreements back, stuff like that. Just stuff to think about. When these big platforms go down is always a good reminder to go look at, look at your vendor agreements, look at how you've architected stuff and just make sure if that outage happened on your platform, have you thought about the implications of it? Um, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Have a backup plan. Yep. Yep. And at least if you're, at least if you're going to make, take the risk of being in a single vendor, like, you know, make, make that decision consciously. All right. Uh, our main topic today is GitOps. Um, what What is GitOps? Oh, it's hard to explain. It's a whole, whole, you know, mentality. I feel like um, it really is um, kind of a mindset of instead of you know, you know, manually deploying things to. It's kind of become a topic that's related to Kubernetes. So instead of just manually deploying things to Kubernetes willy nilly, you have a Git repo um, and it's all kind of initiated by Git, which is your source of truth. So everything running in your Kubernetes cluster, you can trace back to this Git repo. And if you lose your cluster, I mean, hopefully you have data backups, but 
you know, that repo should define, here's all the applications I need, all the configuration and all of that. Um, so it's kind of like infrastructure as code, but in Kubernetes. Uh, it's, there's been a big push for it over the last couple of years. Um, yeah. So you mentioned infrastructure as code. Let's yeah. let's talk about that for a minute. So when we say infrastructure as code, we're meaning like kind of declarative infrastructure. So it's not like do this. You don't write like do this. You write be this, right? Like this is what I want. Yeah. Yeah. So and infrastructure as code also typically brings with it like the concept of version control, whether that's Git or like subversion or whatever, right? In this case, we're talking about Git specifically. Um, and then also continuous delivery, which is automated processes to make your declarations happen in the real world or the virtual world of like your servers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and infrastructure as code didn't originally really even relate to Kubernetes. I mean, it might have more history than I'm even aware of, but it, at least, you know, in my experience was a cloud native term. So you make infrastructure as code to say, you know, like I want these servers in AWS and I want this load balancer. And now it kind of works for Kubernetes too. Yeah. Yeah. So I think kind of more traditional or maybe a little bit older infrastructure as code tools would be stuff like AWS is cloud formation, which is their special sauce infrastructure as code. Um, I haven't actually messed with CloudFormation much because it looks like a huge mess. Um, <laughs> it just looks really verbose, like when you That's have it generated. I think. Oh, gross! And then, kind of the other big one is is HashiCorp's Terraform, right? Which is vendor agnostic. You can kind of write once, use multiple places. Although some of the modules kind are a little of. specific, so if you squint, you can do that. Um, <laughs> but it is open source, so you you could write Terraform against Azure. GCP, AWS, VMware, your mom's laptop. Like, you, there's there's a ton of modules. It's been around a long time. Um, they got they hit their like 1.0 stable version. I don't know, like two years ago, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in beta before then. Yeah, but yeah, it's, yeah. But it's I it's think been used for many years now. Yeah. Um. Um, and it it has a plugin architecture too, so Terraform is yeah. pretty cool. You can hook in whatever you want. Yeah, but. But it's not GitOps. It's not GitOps, although it's not necessarily like mutually exclusive from GitOps. No, I think both are really good resources. GitOps yeah. is more, you know, the actual applications if you use Kubernetes. Um, and then, you know, like just traditional infrastructure as code with like Terraform is useful for all the cloud things that you need. Yeah, it seems like Terraform is a really good like foundation or first step. And then if you're dealing with traditional servers, a lot of times you'll see Terraform pivot into Ansible for configuration management. But if you're deploying workloads into Kubernetes, I think Terraform will pivot into a GitOps kind of workflow for that second stage, like stage two. Mm-hmm. But yeah, under GitOps, it's really nice because you don't, it's obviously still useful to be able to get into the cluster, but you don't necessarily need to connect to the cluster directly to do things. Right. So that sounds like, so if you're using some other way to get application manifests into Kubernetes, if you're doing that in a CI CD pipeline, that pipeline would have to authenticate like into your Kubernetes cluster, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So with GitOps, you don't have to. You kind of switch yes. from, from a push-based 
like deployment to a pull based one, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a lot more secure. Your source code repository doesn't even have to have access into your hosting infrastructure. It your hosting infrastructure will just see that there was an update and it'll pull that. Yeah, that's super. That's really nice from both the just pain of managing, like logging into different providers, but also, like you said, the security aspect of do you want people to be able to write CI jobs that have access to your repository secrets that include login information for your clusters? Uh, Probably not. You also don't want your clusters like API endpoint to be publicly available. That's a good point too, right? And there've been there've been pretty well documented attacks or vulnerabilities with Kubernetes APIs when those do get exposed publicly yeah. by companies, right? Like Yeah, and usually it's pretty, you know, pretty locked down. You need a client certificate and things. But I mean, you know, in the past you like you said there have been security issues even just due to misconfiguration and the response right. really is like, well, that's not supposed to be public so right make it private so yeah it's if you have a pull based approach you have like less of your infrastructure directly on the surface prone to attack right even no 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 matter how well kubernetes secures their api like stuff's gonna happen stuff always happens Mm -hmm. like it's a big it's a big software project there's a lot of complexity i mean we've seen stuff with like just how open ssh and open ssl have had vulnerabilities over the years just because of like these large open source projects, you know, stuff stuff gets missed, bugs happen. So yeah, that's a that seems that seems like a really good benefit to to doing GitOps. Um, yeah. Another nice thing that you get with GitOps is eliminating configuration drift. So I've seen in the past, you know, like deployments where. You know, when I first used Kubernetes, a lot of my deployment jobs would just authenticate into the cluster and then basically tell it, hey, there's a new version of this app available, you know, use this new Docker image. And that worked fine. But, you know, if you start changing configuration and you don't update whatever manifests are in Git, then you don't actually know what's been changed. And most of the GitOps tools will actively check for changes in the cluster that aren't reflected in the Git repository and revert them so that Git yeah. is the source of truth. So it's nice to be able to eliminate that. Yeah, this has happened. This has happened to us before, right? Like <laughs> if we have for, for some projects, we would store the deployment like infrastructure as code, which is kind of a Terraform based thing and Terraform and Helm. Um, yeah. Helm is quote unquote, a package manager for yeah. Kubernetes. It's kind more of a of. templating engine, um, but it's, it's a really useful tool for sure. Uh, but the way like we would store infrastructure, like application manifest type stuff alongside application code. And a struggle we had had in the past was we had some apps with really long build times, but if we wanted to change infrastructure as code stuff, like environment variable stuff, stuff like that, um, that doesn't, actually require an application build unless you happen to tie everything together like we did. And then you're waiting five minutes for a build to update like an environment variable, like a URL or something. Right. Exactly. So what would happen is we didn't want to, we're lazy, right? We don't want to wait on that thing. Either we're, you were lazy or, or there's a pressing need to change something and we don't want to wait on a build. So we go into the, into the cluster and change it, like edit the deployment, which is fine. 
until the dev pushes a fix two weeks later and your infrastructure change gets overwritten because you forgot to go commit it back into the repository. Um, and then like whatever you changed just got reverted and like you can fix it. It's not that big a deal. Everything is inversion control, but it's a pain and you might break like that dev may push something on a Friday night cause they're, they're working late and I don't want to be working on a Friday night <laughs> to go refix the thing I was supposed to fix two weeks ago. Right. So yeah, that detecting and resolving like configuration drift is super useful because it almost, it, it makes you work really hard to do it wrong. Like yeah. most of these tools have a way to like pause their reconciliation loops and go actually edit stuff. So you have that like control if you need it, but that's kind of a pain. And so you won't do it unless you absolutely have to. And like, it's easier to do it the right way and making it easier to do it the right way means that like, there's just less risk of stuff drifting over time. And it means that at any time what's in version control is what's in the cluster to the point that if you want to see how an app's configured, you can look at the Git repo. You don't have to log into the cluster to see it. And that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So with that, um, kind of the, you know, ongoing check everything that's running and revert any changes. If you, you know, do something like that, it would get reverted in usually like a few minutes. So yeah. Yeah. You would know before Friday night comes around. Which yeah, exactly. Nice. Well, and then another, another benefit of having everything in Git is you can give devs access, like read only access to it, or I mean, you can give them right access to, especially like dev, like right? The dev site, environments. Yeah. yeah. And then they don't have to understand Kubernetes. They don't have to have a login to Kubernetes. Um, they can make changes on the dev, like on the development environments, infrastructure as code without having to like bring in the operations team. And for some stuff, that's really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, because at least at our company, like the operations team is pretty small compared to how many devs we have because we're at a custom software shop. Um, so we got a lot of devs doing a lot of stuff. We have a handful of, of operations folks and it's not that I don't want them to bother me because they're my customers, right? They're internal, but they're my customers. I, and I like all our devs. I don't want them to have to get out of their flow, nail down one of our operations people, like pull us out of whatever we're doing and get them to fix the thing. Like it's, it's not a, not like a personnel problem because all of our, you know, we all work really well together, but it's yeah. every step in that process takes time and it's a context switch. And that also costs a lot of time. So like if a dev wants to make like a five minute environment variable change or URL change or whatever, it could take them like half an hour to, to get one of us able to talk them through how to do it or do it for them. And so the more stuff that our developers can like self-service that just speeds up, speeds up their development. Um, it lets us focus on kind of more big picture stuff as opposed to just doing like onesie twosie, like helping out the devs tasks. It's really nice. It's really nice when the developers are empowered to go do the thing they need to do. And there's not a lot of roadblocks in their way. Yeah. Yeah. And with the alerting and things, they can even know if they've made a change that worked and got deployed or if it failed. Um, so yeah, that's definitely valuable. And then kind of as a final point that came to mind for us, it it also, you know, then you have Git history that perfectly lines up with what was in your cluster at that point in time. I, you know, mentioned I host Kubernetes here at home. I've 
I, I host a ton of apps and there have been times where I don't need an app and I get rid of it. And then six months later, I'm like, you know, let me try that guy out again. And I can just do a git log, find where I deleted it and then revert that. And so it's really nice to have sort of that history, uh, which also gives you an audit trail and even just like permissions, you know, Mitchell mentioned allowing devs to touch dev sites. And well, you can do that with Git. You can, you know, create code owners and say, okay, devs can change the dev ver version of the site, but not prod without like DevOps approval. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the cool thing is you can use Git PR approval process. So you could have devs even propose changes to the production environment and just require a member of the operations team, like approve, like review and approve the, the PR. Or exactly. Pull request in GitHub land, merge request in GitLab land. And that's, it kind of enables some asynchronous approval and, and collaboration without having to, you know, talk with someone in Slack or get them on a call. Yeah. There are some challenges to it. It has a pretty steep learning curve. <laughs> And yeah, a lot yeah. of initial like, yeah, time invested into it. I still don't feel like my personal fleet info or the one that we work on, you know, for work is perfect. I there, there's always some learning to do and cleaning it up and making it all look nice and easy to work with. Yeah, I feel like early on there can be some almost like decision paralysis where it's like, Staring at a blank sheet of paper or a blank repository and trying to figure out how do you organize all of your applications, all your infrastructure and everything, it can be a challenge. Um, and we've we've redone ours a couple of times. So I think to that, I would say just start, pick a direction, go down it. And if it when it stops working for you or when it gets painful, look at something different. Yeah. Because, I mean, you're right. It is a huge, relatively, it is a big initial time investment. But on the flip side, it starts paying dividends immediately. Like the first it deployment does. may take you a week. The second one will take you three minutes. Like it's, it's like that level of just like speed up after, after Automation, you get it done. Yeah. 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 It's, it's incredible. And as you, you know, if you go through setting up one of these tools at first, it'll be, you know, you'll, you'll be asking yourself like, is this worth it? This seems like a lot. It's a lot of, a lot of nuances to learn a lot of, just a lot of pieces to get in position, but man, once it's working, it is, it's a force multiplier for sure. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be perfect either. Like you right. mentioned kind of analysis paralysis. That happens a lot to me. I, I tend to overthink things and want to do them right the first time. But sometimes that ends up taking longer than if I had just done it wrong and then figured out what was wrong and then refactored it to be right. So yeah, I would say, you know, check out the docs for, one of the tools we'll mention a lot of them that we're using in a bit. Yeah. Um, and I, a lot of them have kind of recommended, like here's some ways you could structure your, your repository. Yep. Um, another, another thing we ran into is some of the tools don't GitOps kind of by itself doesn't solve for secrets. Um, GitOps yeah. in itself is not opinionated about secrets. It doesn't care where they live. Um, there's a lot of different ways to solve for secrets as part of a GitOps workflow, um, we are using, in a lot of places we're using Mozilla SOPs. Yeah, I love SOPs. To encrypt secrets and store them in Git. So actually our secrets live encrypted alongside the infrastructure as code, which I think is really cool. Um, for some of our 
Some of our clients, we use like PGP for that encryption. Others, we use like the cloud native KMS tools like GCP KMS or AWS KMS. That works really well for us. You could totally use something like HashiCorp's vault or some other secret store externally to get. You don't have to get your secrets in to get. Um, but that is one thing to be aware of. Now, what I would recommend is definitely don't just keep them like if you're using Kubernetes, don't just keep them as like native Kubernetes objects. That is kind of an anti-pattern for for any infrastructure as code because if something happened to your cluster or something happened to etcd, you would lose that data, right? Yeah. You'd lose those secrets. So you want it somewhere outside of kind of just uh, almost anything running inside Kubernetes itself should probably be considered at some level kind of ephemeral. Um, and that's kind of back to the old backups, like best practices of if you have some, like if you have something one place, you have it in none places, right? You want like, you want backups. Um, so for us, Git is actually secret backups. Like secrets live in Git. They're in version (laughs) control. They're just fully encrypted. Um, and for a lot of them, we're using the cloud KMS tool. So, and again, then then we have history too on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That is pretty cool fashion. It's awesome. So that's something to be aware of. You want to plan out how you manage secrets as you, if you move your workloads into GitOps. Um, lots of different tools out there to help you with that. But GitOps in itself, especially, we'll talk about a couple of tools. One of them in particular does not solve for secrets very well. And then one of them does. Um, <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, kind of like we mentioned with the rapid reversion of um changes is if you or your team is used to hopping into clusters via kubectl and just issuing changes willy-nilly you're gonna want to break that habit that was us or it'll get broken for you hard yeah. so the first time you you know you'll scale down a deployment it's still i still do this i, I forget and i'll like kubectl scale deployment replica zero and then in like 30 seconds it's back up and i'm like what are you what are you doing i told you to did die. i not just scale am i crazy no but um, especially if you're reckon if you have static manifests in these uh in GitOps, they will get reverted within seconds. Some of the Helm stuff can take a little longer for it to figure it out and, and reconcile it away. Um but that is a challenge if you're really used to just hopping in directly into the cluster and making stuff happen. You'll need to you'll need to kind of break that habit to take full advantage of these tools for sure. Yeah. And then your manifests kind of are are now subject to like the change management process. You have to figure out like what sort of protections to put on that infrastructure, Git repository, you know, do we require some people to approve before I can merge in a change, things like that. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, that I think that's that's kind of a benefit, the fact that you can do that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I can see it both ways because there's a, a lot of operations people don't, want to be encumbered with change management. They just want to like, I know what's wrong. Let me go fix it. Yeah. But especially as, especially as like a company grows, once you start looking at certain kind of compliance regulations, like an ironclad change management process should be part of, it should be at least be in a conversation you have as your company like matures to that level and having a way to, to get your infrastructure to conform to that process is definitely a pro, but let's, Let's not fool ourselves. Like that's going to add complexity and time and a little bit of frustration to your lives. Well, and you also still need some sort of a break glass key. Like if something's broken, you need to be able to get in at some level to fix it. So yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. Um, Another thing actually that we we should have mentioned earlier, I I forgot to uh, list 
that's pretty useful about GitOps is you can, with Kubernetes, you can have multiple nodes, like multiple computers in a single cluster. That's why it's called a Kubernetes cluster. But if you have multiple clusters, historically, it's been kind of hard to manage applications. But GitOps makes it possible to define an application in one place and then have multiple clusters use that same configuration. So it, it kind of helps manage multiple clusters, which we've actually done. I I do that at home. I have a... I was going to say, we've architected and built a solution like for a client yeah. that relies heavily on that feature. And I, I'm sure at some point we'll dive deeper into, you know, not client specifics, but like how we architected their solution and, and u- utilize that feature. But it is super useful. And you said you're doing that at home? Yeah, well, I was going to say I do that at home a little bit. Like, you know, I have my ingress configuration and, you know, cert manager, which issues certificates. And I use that same configuration for my home cluster and then a VPS, like a cloud server that I pay for. And then I was going to mention, yeah, we've also done that for a much more important scenario of kind of, a you know, hosting an app in two data centers in case one goes down. So that's a big benefit that in the past, I mean, I guess you'd deploy your app to both clusters at the same time, but it would be hard to manage. So that's a big, big selling point. So we've kind of danced around what the tools are. Do you want to? Yeah. So the big two, I'm sure there are more, but you always hear like Argo CD and Flux CD. I, I can't speak to Argo too much. You might have to talk to that, talk on that here in a minute. I kind of settled on Flux and that's what we've ended up using for work. Um, it's very powerful tool. But you used Argo. Is it pretty similar, like just but a little different? It's pretty similar. Um, Argo has the advantage of it does have a pretty decent UI Mm. that lets you see all your Kubernetes workloads and stuff. So if you want like a Kubernetes dashboard, it's not really designed to be that, but it can kind of function as that. So you can see all of your apps, your deployments, you know, everything grouped by your Argo application. There were some stuff I didn't like about it. The way, and this may have gotten better. I haven't used Argo in a year and a half or so. At the time, it had some pretty limited ways to reference Helm values. This is getting kind of deep into Argo. Yeah. Um, it also it also doesn't really solve the secrets problem at all, or at least it didn't when I played with it. Um, there were some ways to try to add plugins to like Argo's Helm binaries and stuff like that. It seemed really technical, like even for what I was doing, and I kind of got to the point that I wasn't a big fan of Argo CD. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's working great for people. I may have been holding it wrong. It was the first GitOps tool I played with. So some of that was undoubtedly on me being new to these tools. It does have a nice UI for some people. Gabe, that's not a, <laughs> a point in its favor. <laughs> no, I mean, usually. I will say, I will say at the time, the <laughs> UI did not work at all on mobile. Ah. So, and I know like it's weird, like why, why would you want to manage a cluster on your phone? But like, I mean, I do that a lot. Useful if you're on vacation <laughs> and something weird happens, it's nice to have a UI. Especially, especially cause like their UI is really pretty and it's not super technical. Like it's all kind of block based. So it seems like it would be fine on a phone, but it didn't work well on a phone. Again, that may have changed. I, it's been a while and a year or so in dev DevOps tool time is a lot. Yeah, time. that's true. It's probably a whole different UI now. Like, who it knows? Could be. Could be. Um, yeah, I, I remember actually. I did try Argo a bit. You're right. There were some limitations with Helm, but overall it felt really powerful. The UI was pretty cool. We kind of ended up settling on Flux. Um, uh, personally, I, I, I really love Flux. 
Again, I haven't used Argo much, so I can't compare, but that's kind of what I used first, and I just stuck with it. Uh, my The reason I originally went with Flux CD was because I use Helm for pretty much everything I deploy, That which is that package manager slash kind of templating for Kubernetes tool that we mentioned. Um, and Flux integrates with Helm in a really powerful way. Yeah, Flux is cool. It, it's the one where they recommend SOPs kind of out of the box. Flux supports it. You just configure it for your secret encryption and it'll it'll work with it. Yeah, so they bundle a SOPS operator yeah. with Flux. And so you just commit your secrets. And so how SOPS kind of works, I'll talk about it real fast, is you build like a Kubernetes secrets manifest, just static manifest with, you know, like your Kubernetes secret. You use SOPS and it basically encrypts just the value field of like the key value pair for the secret. Yeah. And Flux has a SOPS operator that can see that decrypts it and like that gets inserted into Kubernetes as the secret object. So in Kubernetes, it's still like not encrypted, you know, like it's base 64 encoded or whatever. It's not encrypted inside Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. Um, But the nice part is that's all kind of transparent. Like you set up, you just add a little tag in your flux config of like use the, here's the key to use to decrypt SOPs. And it just does it when you essentially apply it manifests with encrypted data in them. So that's pretty slick. Um, it really kind of helps bridge that gap of like, what do I do with my secrets as I move to GitOps is like, if you use Flux, it kind of just handles it as long as you're okay with figuring out how Mozilla SOPS works. Yeah, they even have a nice doc that's like, here's how you can use SOPS with Flux. Which is Yeah, great. they will. And I'll say Flux, is, Flux documentation is really good. Yeah, I love their um, documentation. I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, Argos is pretty good too. You also mentioned the UI in Argo. So Flux doesn't have an official one, but in their docs, they actually have an FAQ. And one of the questions is, why don't you have a UI? And the answer is, check out Weave GitOps. Um, so okay. Weave is really cool. I've been running it for a few months now, and it basically oh, nice. lists out all the stuff that you have in Flux with buttons to suspend or resume. It has statuses that update live as things change, and it also has like a sync button, which, you know... Uh, checks the repository and updates any changes. So maybe that was, that's the missing link. Weave GitOps is really cool. If you use a lot of the stuff by Rancher, I guess they have a GitOps solution called Rancher Fleet. We don't use a lot of Rancher stuff. Um, We use K3S in a few places personally, I think. I don't know that we've used it anywhere. Actually, no, we (laughs) have the on-prem Kubernetes node we have that does run K3S. It does use K3S. I I love K3S. It's pretty solid. K3S has been great. It's a way to take Kubernetes and make it easier to start out using. Um, So I'm a big fan of it. But no, we haven't really played with Rancher Fleet. I did try Rancher on my home infrastructure to spin up Kubernetes clusters. But at that point, I was already pretty deep into Flux. So I didn't didn't try to play with Fleet to see if it was cool or not. Because I have a a system that works for me and I didn't want to. I was changing stuff already. I didn't want to change everything. Um, at the time, I was still using I was using a mix of Argo CD and <laughs> Bitnami Sealed Secrets and Flux and SOPS. So it, there was a lot happening there for a while. Yeah, I mean, it was hard. I'm sure it was hard to migrate everything over. I'm glad I started with Flux and that's kind of, you know, I yeah. have no complaints, but I'm sure that migration was frustrating. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't it wasn't terrible. It helped that it was my personal like stuff. So I didn't I could have some downtime and I could legitimately break stuff and it like no one was going to yell at me. Sure. So that was nice. Um, but yeah, I mean, like we said earlier, pick a tool, play with it. If it stops working for you, check out other tools. Um, it's helpful if that isn't in like your production environment, because that can get a little tricky. 
Um, migrating between Argo and Flux, well, I wouldn't call it painless. Migrating from one Flux repo to another, that was pretty easy because you can they Flux has a dock on how to do it. Yep. You can pause reconciliation, rename the man like the customizations and stuff, and then like bring everything back up. And there's no downtime. Flux just hooks everything back up how it needs to go. Argo, switching off of Argo wasn't that easy because their application, their Argo application doc objects are different than Flux's. Yeah. So there was some downtime there. But but it's okay. You know, play with this stuff in a sandbox or at your house if you are that way. (laughs) Like both of us are. Hey, it's so fun. (laughs) It's great. It's been great. Like, I mean, my home infrastructure has for a long time been a sandbox for stuff I want to do at work, but don't have the time during the workday to do. And it's been great. Like that's how that's how I started with Kubernetes. That's how I started with GitOps. Um, I'm sure whatever whatever stuff I start playing with next will be the same way. Yeah, I've been the same way. Having having a home lab is really useful. And if you don't have a home lab, I would encourage you to think about like starting one up. Usually, people recommend Raspberry Pis for that. Right now, those are pretty hard to find. I've really been liking these mini PCs, like the Lenovo M900. And what was your HP one? Uh, it's the Elite Desk 800G2 Mini. So for what you would pay for a Raspberry Pi 4, especially right now, you can get one of these machines, like they're going to be used. So if that's not your thing, then that's fine. But one of these used machines, like off eBay, they run like 80-ish dollars with usually like a 256 SSD. And then what I like to do is buy 20 or $40 of memory and put in them to get up to 16 gigs. And then you've got a solid little machine for running stuff at home pretty low power use too yeah i think they i think they idle pretty low like 13 15 20 watts and then under full tilt maybe 60 but you could be in one of these machines for like 100 bucks 120 bucks and it's x86 which isn't great as great as the pies for power sipping but you can run everything on them also pies have you know some small issues here and there with you know like usb ports interfering with wi-fi and stuff like that so I, I love Raspberry Pis, but I think for a server, I always prefer to get something like this, at least personally. The Raspberry Pis are super... I, I assume they're still hard to find. When I was looking a couple months ago, I couldn't find one. One of mine died. I had a Pi 4. It died. There was like something power-related died on it, and I couldn't get it to run anymore. And I tried to find one, and I was like, well, for that price, I could be in like a Intel i5 box. <laughs> and here we are. I think that's all we wanted to cover for GitOps. If you would like to contact us about topics we should cover, questions about topics we have covered, etc., our website is podcastascode.show, and you can contact us at contact at podcastascode.show. Our next episode will be about monitoring. So if you're interested in learning what kind of things you should be monitoring and how you can monitor those things, stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks. See you next time.